Hello and welcome. I am Haini. I am Simon. And I am Alexander. We are Knee Deep in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 173, recorded on February 1st, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. And before we get going with today's episode, we have a correction from the last time. Our dear friend, Mr. Johan Dahlbom, reached out to me and um, wanted to clarify that guest users have never had more permissions inside of an Azure AD tenant, which I claimed in the last episode, uh, and that actually they are more restricted by default since four years back or something like that. However, it's very common that tenants are misconfigured and therefore granting them a lot of permissions or access through conditional access. And do remember that by default, and this is something that your regular users shouldn't be able to do either, they can consent to... um, application permissions on behalf of the entire organization. So thank you, Johan, for keeping us out of fake news. Keeping us on on, on our toes and basically keeping us honest. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that works. Did you just call me dishonest? Well, in a way, yes. <laughs> thank you. Always. So we've had some small news in, in my side of the fence. And, um, well, it's it's February and we still don't have a January Power BI desktop update. It, it kind of got lost somewhere. But we have got a January update for Synapse. And one of the things that came out, it, it didn't get very much um, press, if you will, but there is now a hash bytes function in the serverless pool. So a, a hash byte function is a way to calculate a hash based on some input. It's been doable in SQL Server since, well, forever, basically. But we couldn't do it in um, in serverless. And one of the reasons why you would want to do it in serverless is to use it for data comparisons. So you can actually calculate a hash byte, a, a well, a data hash on the fly. You could use a view to calculate changed rows in a in incremental um, data load scenario, for instance. I haven't tried this myself, uh, but that was the first idea that I had using uh, serverless when serverless came out. And, and I kind of found out the hard way with that, yeah, there's no hash bytes um, function, but now there is. So definitely do check it out because I think it's, it's kind of cool. One of the things that we have had when it comes to news with Power BI is that for the next Power BI desktop release, and this was actually announced in June, Microsoft is switching a very vital component of Power BI from what's known as Ceph Sharp uh, or or CF Sharp, I don't know how to pronounce it, to WebView 2. This is for optimizing the development and release process so you need to install and enable WebView 2 um, in order to get the uh, the next version of Power BI Desktop to run. And I'm, I'm sure that this will bite a few people in the posterior, unfortunately. There was also a Synapse security overview. It's a white paper called the Azure Synapse um, Analytics Security White Paper. And um, my my first thought when I saw this was, yeah, 
Good luck on that one. Because we need it. We desperately need it. Uh, the security aspects of Synapse is, uh, to put it mildly, a bit of a mess. <laughs> it is extremely complicated. And if, if you ever had the idea that Synapse is a fantastic idea, that means taking a lot of cool stuff, putting it in a blender, and adding several meters of duct tape, yes, <laughs> it's extremely clear that is the case from a security standpoint, because it is not unified in any way, shape, or form. So this white paper is a great start. I haven't gone very deep in this, so I haven't really looked at the, the specifics. Uh, but again, I think this is a great starting point when it comes to uh, figuring out the, the security between the bits and pieces of Synapse. I know, Haney, you've spent some time figuring out how things work, and... Um, Finding some, uh, shall we say, unexpected behaviors. Interesting. Yeah, hmm. it is. I think the best way to describe it is that it is a bit complex and you need to consider multiple layers. Yeah, and, and it's that's the biggest blocker, in my view, for the whole unified um, analytics platform idea. It's a fantastic idea, but as it stands, it kind of trips over itself. But but isn't that the case with many Azure products? Intune is a perfect example of that as well, where you have the Azure AD permissions, and then you have all the role-based access things within the services that predates Azure in some cases. So when you then mix it together, it, it creates a mess. That That's true. And we have the exact same situation in Azure SQL, where mm -hmm. uh, role-based access control was never a part of, of SQL, but it's it's getting there. The problem you're facing with uh, Synapse is that it's not only one layer. It's not just Azure SQL. It's dedicated pools, which behaves mm -hmm. completely different from serverless. And serverless talking to the data lake and adding Spark on top, It's there, there, there are layers up on layers up on layers. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get the idea that the developers, they didn't even talk to each other, let alone knew each other's existence. And this is extremely frustrating as the, the big marketing machine from Microsoft goes, this is the integrated, super cool analytics workbench. And yes, the idea is fantastic, but the implementation so far has left some um, something to be desired, if you put it that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Speaking about security, and I, I'm, I'm terribly sorry to have to say, the following news item isn't a joke we have a new privacy product microsoft priva i'm sorry what microsoft <laughs> priva p-r-i-v-a privacy exactly and and i honestly had to look this up in three different sources before i believed that they would use that name no 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 Pri privacy is a thing simon <laughs> well, oh, yeah, but you know, I work for Microsoft, so I don't care about privacy, according to some Swedish governmental agencies. Do, do you work for Microsoft? Uh, not as far as I'm aware, Oh, but I have a Microsoft title. I may have a Microsoft exam under my belt. Mm. I might know a few things about Microsoft. Fair enough. But Priva is a way to help users, especially with understanding privacy and, and where kinds of information is actually a privacy concern. So 
it consists, of course, of two different products. We have Priva Privacy Risk Management and Priva Subject Rights Requests. So the risk management is to ensure that if you, for example, save your emails for too long or you start to gather email addresses or other kinds of personal information inside of an email or OneNote or Notepad, it will notify you that this might be a privacy concern and you can take actions based on that. And with subject rights request, that's the ability for a person to give me all everything you have on me uh, from your data. This will help you with data discovery and also privacy issues. So if you are making it too hard to find something or helping you realize what are you actually sending? Are you sending other kinds of information to this uh, requester and then redact information accordingly. So I would say it's a fantastic feature. I question how it will be paid for and I think it's something that we all can learn a lot from and that's the entire intention with Priva because we go through all kinds of trainings for privacy and um, Microsoft claims that according to the forgetting curve theory you will forget 75% of your training after just six days. I would claim that it goes way quicker than that. But I, I do think it's a reasonable addition, but I wonder who decided on that name. Well, Microsoft has a bit of a track record of, of uh, shall we say, creative names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's go to news in products that have a fairly reasonable name. We have news in Intune. Uh, that were released, actually, they were deployed until yesterday. Uh, the main aspect is that we now can deploy DMJ-type applications to macOS devices. What? D DMJ? Are you talking Disc about DMG? DM yeah, sorry, DMG. Oh, sorry. right. So yeah. the, the, sorry. Uh, the the Mac, uh, Mac the, the file format. The, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Which is very common. It hasn't been available previously. It's really. Uh, let's say that the implementation could be better. Okay. And we will deep dive into that another time. But um, let's just say that the release notes for that feature have more known issues than they actually have solutions. Filters are generally available, which is great. Many customers are now unblocked by that. We we did touch on filters the other day, right? Yeah. So filters is basically if you target, as a colleague of mine currently have, he is targeting all devices, all all users, and then he states you can only deploy this on a certain model of Android phone, right? Which gives him the ability to target things much much quicker than by using Azure AD groups. Hmm. Tenant Attach uh, is generally available, so the integration between Config Manager and Intune, so the ability to run CM Pivot or collect BitLocker keys on Config Manager managed devices and store that in Intune. And we also have a new account protection policy where you are now, as a built-in policy, are able to populate local groups on devices with Azure AD users. So if you want to add an administrator, based on a Azure AD group to a local group on a device that's now in public preview. And continuing with 
Microsoft Endpoint Manager and moving into Config Manager. Yesterday we had the first technical release, technical preview of 2022. A lot of visual improvements. So you can now visualize the flow of content to your distribution points. You can sort many more uh, things by icon. And that may sound very odd, but there are a lot of things in Config Manager. As an example, a computer is turned on or off. That is only indicated by an icon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you sort it based on icons. And you can now also add icons to task sequences and other kinds of deployments that you want to make a little better looking for your users. And we also, just to make you happy, Alexander, have improvements to Power BI report server integration from Config Manager. Mm-hmm. So you can now apparently use... They are a year after, apparently. You can now use Microsoft Power BI Desktop optimized for Power BI Report Server. Apparently, that's the name. Yeah. Uh, Together with Config Manager. That is not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing at all. So so you have that, and (laughs) Config Manager now correctly handles the reports (laughs) that are saved by that Power BI version. And also in... This technical preview, which is kind of odd, in the technical preview, tenant attach from the config manager side is now generally available. And then a ton of new PowerShell commandlets. Just a good first release, I have to say. And now to the abbreviations. That must be me then. (laughs) I only have like one really long abbreviation in my list, but... uh, Let's start with the Azure Static Web Apps Enterprise Grade Edge Private Preview. And yes, <laughs> uh, this is one of these services that kind of combines many capabilities together. So this pretty much combines Azure Static Web Apps, it combines Azure Front Door and Azure Content Delivery Network into a single service. And I have to say, I'm interested to see what this is going to look like in real life. Because, you know, sometimes when there are many services brought together, it might be a bit of a uh, not so smooth experience. Yeah, it might be a bit like Synapse. But these are maybe kind of more uh, similar in nature to begin with, these services. And kind of they, we often in, when we are setting up solutions, these would be the ones that you combine together to bring in all the capabilities. Did you say static web apps and content delivery network? Yes. Nice. I can really see where that fits. Yeah. Plus front door. Yeah, plus front door. Good stuff. I think front door is a very underappreciated solution. We, uh, I met a fantastic former MVP and now Microsoft employee from Greece who specialized Mm -hmm. in front door. Um, He was a fantastic beer drinking mate as well. (laughs) And I've forgotten his name. Sorry, Uh, I will find you later. Um, But he he, he really introduced me to front door and it's a fantastic solution. Yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of capabilities that can be used. There's some caveats with, for example, the health checks coming from all geolocations to your application or to your backend that you are trying to reach through it. So there's a few things to kind of take into consideration when setting it up, but it has pretty cool features in it. 
All right, then we get to the much celebrated abbreviations. So we have a general availability of multiple custom BGP APIPA addresses for active VPN gateways. And yes, you're probably like thinking like, what is she talking about? I, I know what BGP is, but that's pretty much it. Yep, border gateway protocol. That's networking for you, Simon. Yeah, exactly. Ah. That is that is how we connect the different uh, autonomous systems and enable them to communicate together. But then what this API-PA uh, stands for is... Automatic private IP addressing. Yes, exactly. I dropped the private. That's That's why. Do not drop your privates. <laughs> so pretty much what this allows you to do is give this custom uh, IP address to your BGP, uh, assign it to your as your PGP IP address itself. And so then you use this to connect the different VPN devices. And this, for example, makes it easier to set up connections with AWS and and some also some other on-premise devices as well. So uh, some some devices use this, and and especially it it makes it kind of the configuration with those specific devices much easier. So uh, one of the services we often have updates on is Azure Kubernetes Service. And again, there's some uh, improvements there. There's, uh, for example, Kubernetes version alias support. So you don't have to specify a minor version version that you want, but just a major, and then it will just pull the latest one. Like small things, but there's continuously these small things coming in to improve how AKS works and to really ease the manageability. And like we've been talking about AKS a lot. Well, I have been <laughs> saying news items about it. So what I thought today is that we could talk a bit about containers, because to understand Azure Kubernetes service, we first need to understand what is containers and how does AKS relate to that. So how does that sound? Oh, yeah, I, I have mm -hmm. questions. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, let's start from there. So uh, if we start from a place that is probably uh, very familiar to most people and we think about virtual machines, we have the hardware layer and that that has its own operating system. And then we have in there, we then also have the hypervisor that then does the distribution of the resources, etc. And then when we have a virtual machine, that virtual machine has its own kernel and operating system and applications and services, et cetera, that it uses. So it's really like you have a complete machine inside a machine. That's kind of how it feels like you have all the components in there. It's kind of a virtual machine. Yeah, exactly. Wonder where the name came from. Not from Microsoft marketing, I can assure you. Yeah, probably not. It makes too much sense. Did I just say that out loud? <laughs> I think you did, yeah. Then we have containers on the other hand. And in containers, it works a little differently. Again, we have the hardware underneath that everything is running on. And on that host server, we of course have the operating system. And then we, on top of that, have the containerization engine 
on top of it. So it's kind of, you could compare it to the hypervisor uh, on the VM side. It, it does different things, of course, because how it's set up is different, but it has a similar kind of role. But then within the container, you only have the applications and services within there. And instead, uh, that application uses the host operating system. So really, it builds on top of that host operating system and kernel and and just has then the application and services packaged together as a container and really makes that container lightweight and shiftable then between different uh, platforms. But in, inside of the container, do you do you handle all the dependencies and stuff like that? That's what you're packaging into a container and then you're using the, the base layer or whatever you call it in inside of the host operating system to to cover the the really basic stuff. Yeah. Yeah yeah. Yeah, so any application dependencies etc would be of course kind of part of the application layer. And that application layer is identical regardless of the operating system we're running on, Windows, Linux, whatever. Mm, there can be little differences, but that's that's kind of the ideal world. That's that's the aim. And then, uh, if we think about containers, like what comes to mind is, of course, like Docker and Kubernetes and all these things. But we should kind of slightly try to differentiate between these different tooling. Because, for example, Docker is a containerization uh, service. Whereas, for example, Kubernetes is an orchestration, container orchestration service. So they do two different things. Docker is what we, for example, in Docker, we use a Docker image uh, definition to describe what is our container like. Whereas uh, in Kubernetes, we are actually orchestrating all the different containers that we want to run on our platform. So it's very, very different. They're not the same thing. So Docker creates the containers, and they look mm -hmm. like whales. That's as far as I've understood. <laughs> and then Kubernetes yes, is basically the whale herder that yeah. decides on what the whales should be doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite accurate. <laughs> I I have my Kubernetes for dummies. Or no, it's it's a, an illustrated children's book about Kubernetes or containers. It's, it's somewhere out there. It's... Uh, our old friend Simon Aronson's uh, fault, but it's a fantastic mm. book. My daughter likes it. Cool. Does it have whales in it? It has whales and it has a zebra that travels the world in a container. It's a beautiful <laughs> book. All right. Whale herder is also my new absolute dream job. Well, have you gotten a chance to use these whales? So containers. <laughs> no, and, and that that's the thing. Like a while back, I decided that I, I need to grasp the concept, but I can't focus on both workplace and running containers as well. On the other hand, I do work with a lot of similar technologies, like cloud paging, AppV back in the days for application virtualization, MSIX, that have a, a different concept of an application, of course, but it's still mm. virtualized and supposed to run on, on the operating system you deploy it to. Um, so I, I grasp the concept, but I, I do not work with containers at all. And I know I'm 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 on my mod like 
everyone should be working with containers, but I think there are a lot of people that do it much better than I do. And and I, I, I think also that, yes, there are so many people that are talking about containers and, and behaving like they know what it is, but the number of people who actually use containerized workloads in mm-hmm. production, that is much lower than you'd think. Yeah, fully fully agree. It's it's a buzzword and you should containerize everything. Yeah, it'll solve all your problems. Exactly. And it, it's it's not just to take your regular line of business server app and chop it up in small pieces and call it Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's it's a new thing. You, you need to optimize it for containers as well. So I, I do agree with you, Alexander. A lot of people are talking about containers and do not understand how to actually get there. They may, might understand the concept and the value, and that might be what they need. And then Haney and, and her crew <laughs> source it out in practice. <laughs> yeah, Docker has really made a number on, on the SQL Server community. Yeah. And um, there are a couple of people talking about it. Um, Andrew Prusky, um, he, he's a fantastic guy. He has the most amazing stories of when he managed to, to lock himself into cupboards. But he does a lot of work with uh, Kubernetes. Uh, Anthony Nosentino does a lot of work with Kubernetes. Ben Weissman does as well. Mm, uh, yeah. Because what it gives you is essentially the ability to switch out your database engine in no time flat. No longer do we need to wait for minutes to upgrade a SQL Server version because the engine, you can get that as as a, a container. So you're basically stopping the thing, tearing out the container, whipping up another container with just the binaries and off to the races you go. You attach your storage and Bob's your uncle. So that works very well. I, I'm using containers at home to mm-hmm. run my networking management software. And whenever there's a new version, I just pull that uh, container image and restart and boom, I'm up. So I I, I really like it. I I have no idea what I'm doing, but it works <laughs> very well. Yeah, that's that's the thing with like uh, tutorials and things like that. You can get started quite easily. Uh, just kind of uh, by doing the steps, but really finding the information about how everything works, that's actually a bit difficult. So you're, you're getting stuck in the whole how it works, but yeah. people tend to miss the why and, and what should you do with it. And that, I, I think, is, is an issue with so much of the technology that we are faced with. Uh, it's, it's easy to write documentation for the how it works, but it's hard to explain why it works the way it does and where you should use it, and, and especially where you should not use it. Yeah, and that was my next question. So could you, like, where is the value of using containers? And where have you seen containers being used that might not been have been appropriate? If you have those examples. I think it's success stories are easier to find. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think where I've seen the most, like, not success is in the scenarios where there is no knowledge yet and mm-hmm. trying to kind of forcefully push to containers without addressing that at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because then it's kind of like you get them to, let's say, even Kubernetes try straight away, but then you're a bit in trouble after that. Like, what do we do with this now? 
So it's not so much of the application maybe not being so suitable, but it's more more not kind of taking in consideration also the cultural changes and how people work and as is quite often the case <laughs> yeah. when we chat. And then um I think the benefits really come from the fact that containers are very lightweight and they are really suitable for these microservices architectures. So any kind of applications that are based on that, those I think benefit the most from this because if you were chucking the microservices for example on virtual machines that would make like no sense. Then you would have more more services than you needed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So for those specifically it's like super good. But many applications can definitely benefit from that. And it it definitely has to do with the container being so lightweight compared to a virtual machine. But then you do need to kind of consider, are you just going to use, for example, plain Docker, or are you going to go to something like Kubernetes, which then uh, at a certain scale starts to benefit. But if you have very small scale, it will probably bring more management overhead than what is the benefit that you're gaining from it. So, so that's still true that like automation is only of value when you have a reasonable amount to automate. Otherwise, you will spend more time automating than actually gaining by automation. And the yeah. same then goes for containers, that if you have one container, you shouldn't yeah. care about using. <laughs> if I have my one container, <laughs> I don't need yeah. Kubernetes to manage that. Yeah, exactly. And that also drives home the point which I think is is a tricky one to get your your head around. We're we're used to having one or two or maybe five servers. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. containers, thousands is not strange. No. Thousands is a bit of a mess to handle on your own. That's where Kubernetes and, and similar stuff comes in. But just designing for swarms like this, mm-hmm. it's it's a whole different ballgame in your head. And it's yeah. one of the new patterns that we we see with microservices taken for, for real. And this this is this requires some serious tooling, and yeah. Kubernetes is one of them. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, then running Kubernetes is a whole nother ballgame because there's all the components of Kubernetes that uh, handle the coordination of creating the pods and containers and all that. So there's also a whole set of terminology that one needs to become familiar with, etc. So it it kind of brings another layer of knowledge that you should acquire before you start really working with it. There we go. Read up before you start messing with Kubernetes. Otherwise, (laughs) it will hurt. Yeah. Uh, And the thing is that even in Azure, there are many ways in which you can run containers. So it's possible to run containers on app service. It's possible to run Azure container instances. It is possible to run Azure container apps. And then there is Azure Kubernetes Service, which is kind of the most heavyweight version of running containers on Azure. Interesting. So let's dive into the community stuff, because as always, we're kind of running out of time. <laughs> um, Simon, you keep harking on your, your little AVD tech fest. Yeah, uh, and call for content closed yesterday. So me and Patrick are going through that today. I think we can spend an entire focus segment on call for sessions, call for yeah. content, and and like abstracts. So 
we might even do that. We might wait <laughs> until the next time because I have the focus segment, if I'm not mistaken, and just talk oh, yeah, about perfect. that. I think it would benefit a lot of people to give our view on how to properly handle it, both from the organizer's point of view as well as the speaker's point of view. But uh, as it looks now, uh, with the world going back to, yeah, or leaving Corona behind, we will uh, be in Amsterdam April 20th to the 21st. And for the ones of you that are able to join on-site, which we hope, we will have a fantastic pre-day, which we will announce in within a week or so. A, and uh, of course, a lot of access to all the fantastic speakers. And if you can't be on site, we will stream the second day and all of the fantastic sessions. I think we will count almost 30 sessions. That we'll I think you just streamed. managed to say fantastic five times. That, that means that it's really <laughs> fantastic, right? With sparkles on. Oh, wow. So registration is open. Early bird goes on until the 14th of February. Speaking of early birds, SQL Bits is still having the, not the super early bird, but the early bird um, package. So it's it's cheaper. Uh, Bits is going to be uh, March 8th through 12th. And what's always funny with Bits is you have a couple of pre-days. Those are the full day of, of one um, specific um, topic. Then you have two days of conferences and three days the third day is free uh the third day the, the the saturday is free which i think is absolutely awesome and of course there's the 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 party um and, and this year it's um the arcade theme mm. i i have an idea it will probably clock in as absolutely hilarious um <laughs> but we'll see and i know for a fact that there are some pretty serious designs going on in the community right now. So it, it'll be fantastic. There we go again. Um, <laughs> and what's also it interesting- It spreads like is, a virus. It, it does. does. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. So Reza, uh, Reza Rad and his wonderful wife, Leila, is putting on the um, Global Power BI Summit again. Unfortunately, it kind of overlaps a bit because it's going to be March, March uh, tw- 7th to 11th. So it's, it, it's overlapping with bits. And this is a round the clock event, uh, basically. I mean, they are based off um, New Zealand, which is all literally the other side of the world from, from where, where we're sitting. And amazing speakers, I didn't say fantastic, but they are fantastic, <laughs> but also amazing. Well, it, it's basically the who's who of the, uh, the Power BI community. Everybody who is anyone and has anything to say is going to be speaking there. And I managed to convince Reza to give me the slot on the 7th. So I'll be doing that before I literally jump on the plane to go to, to, uh, to London. It's, it's a great event. It's not free, but it's not expensive either. So definitely go uh, check that out. And then on the topic of Simon's financials, <laughs> we, we could do a focus segment on that as well. Uh, and here's a top tip to our listeners. Do not ever take financial advice from Simon Binder. But yeah, I'm, I'm working on building a new office, which is actually moving along just nicely, apart from electricity and networking, which might be very essential bits for me. Yeah. Nah. But it, it's moving ahead. 
And I, I of course, need a bit of new things to fill it with because I will have more space and then I need to have more things. So when Elgato announced their Stream Deck pedal, I actually, and this is absolutely true, had been looking at similar pedals on a very big online purchasing platform that you may know. Um, But when Elgato dropped their Stream pedal, um, I just had to buy it. And apparently Alexander did as well. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I I I saw Isidora's post on mm-hmm. Twitter, and I looked at it for five seconds and went, "Yes, that's yep. exactly what I've been looking for." But I had no idea that I was looking for it because for some reason the whole idea of a, of a pedal it's obvious, but it had completely uh, I, I I didn't know about it. And, and it might sound odd, but I've actually thought about getting a pedal for many many years. And the reason is that I worked with Surface Hub because one of the very popular use cases for it were in healthcare. And if you want to change between your x-rays or whatever, you can't touch the screen, even though it, it can support to be wiped with disinfectant Yeah, but it, it's things. not considered sterile. No, exactly. So then a pedal would be absolutely perfect. So I've been looking at it for a good amount of time, uh, didn't have any I didn't know that they existed so this is a fantastic thing and I will use it all the time because then I don't need to have a clicker especially not when I'm at home and my office will be built to produce video so I will use it extensively I hope my my only concern and I hope that this is going to be unfounded is that it is very clicky because I realized the other day that my my finger-mounted clicker mm-hmm. and my super expensive um, Logitech clicker, <laughs> it is extremely clicky. And my uh, the microphone that I use um, for for uh, recording stuff, not this microphone, but another kind of microphone, it picks it up like you can hear it literally click, and. Um, <laughs> That's not fun at all. I'm considering dismounting the one that I have to see if I can de-click it a bit. Uh, but we'll see. But I think the I looked into it and it has even exchangeable springs in the pedals. That, that's the spring tension, yes, but it's yeah. not the the the, uh, no, the, actual. the switch in itself. No. Yeah. Cool. And I, I, I can see that Haney is already looking at the internet and, and wanting to buy one of those things because no, she, she's always I, so into buying stuff. Yeah, I was kind of dozing off here, actually. It, it, <laughs> it's pedals. It's pedals. You, you purchase pedals for way more money than these pedals That's a good cost. point, though. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, does, does the, the Stream Deck pedal work in, uh, in the forest? Is it, an, is it a trail pedal or is it a... a, a a tarmac pedal. It lacks the clickety clickies that you need to fasten your feet. But can you drag it? I think we're losing it. It, it, yeah. it, went, it went downhill from there. I think it yeah. did, but it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, I'll stick to the other kind of pedals that help me move a bike through the forest. And you're, you're actually moving somewhere with that. Yeah, exactly. Ah, there we go. We're back with Winnie the Pooh again. I think yeah. we are. And with that, I think it's also time to end. Um, it's It's been another four, 45 minutes just blew past, which is generally the case with these two. 
Um, so again, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back in a week or so with another episode. And until then, have a good one. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Need Even Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needypentech.com.